This Rarecast is made possible by Global Genes, a leading education and advocacy organization that serves and promotes the needs of patients and families touched by rare and genetic disease. Since 2009, Global Genes has been building awareness, developing patient-focused education and advocacy tools, and funding patient care programs and critical research. To learn more, go to globalgenes.org. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is Rarecast. Limb girdle muscular dystrophy type 2i is a rare genetic condition that causes progressive muscle degeneration that can impact the skeletal, respiratory, and cardiac muscles. As the condition progresses, people lose the ability to perform routine daily activities, such as walking or standing up without assistance. There are no therapies available today to slow, halt, or reverse the condition. ML Bio a company founded by two patient families in search of treatments for the condition and later acquired by Bridge Bio, is advancing an experimental therapy with the potential to become the first oral treatment for limb girdle muscular dystrophy type 2i. We spoke to Doug Spruill, Chief Medical Officer of ML Bio Solutions, about limb girdle muscular dystrophy type 2i the company's experimental therapy to treat the condition, and the power of rare disease patient families to shape drug development. One note before we begin, early in the discussion, Spruill misspeaks. The founders of ML Bio are the McCall and Lockwood families, and the company's lead experimental therapy was discovered at the McCall-Lockwood lab. Doug, thanks for joining us. Hi, it's, uh, it's my pleasure. It's uh, great to be able to talk today. We're going to talk about limb girdle muscular dystrophy, ML Biosolutions, and its experimental therapy to treat the condition. Before we do that, though, I'd like to begin with the backstory of ML Biosolutions. We've been tracking the growing ability of patient advocates and rare disease families to catalyze drug discovery and development, and ML Bio is an example of that. Can you explain how ML Bio came to be? Oh, absolutely. It's uh, it's really a fantastic story of how um, pay, how parents and families uh, and patients can turn what would otherwise be a tragedy uh, into something not just positive but really transformative for for a, for a patient community. And ML Bio was founded in two thousand one. Uh, by the Merritt and Lockwood families. Uh, they had a uh, affected child with uh, this disease, specifically it's called limb girdle muscular dystrophy type 2i. And they encountered a, a world where there was limited understanding of the disease, limited understanding of what caused the disease, and there was no prospect of any therapies that would actually treat the disease. And so uh, they, they, Pull, they pulled together significant resources and didn't just, just kind of throw it at, at, at trying to do some research, but created a laboratory with a specific mission to develop 
therapeutic strategies and potential therapies to treat this disease. And from that, uh, a product we call BBP418, it's also called Ribitol, uh, emerged. And ML Biosolutions was founded uh, to, to develop this, the, the, this, this therapy that emerged from the research that was sponsored by uh, the Merritt Lockwood Lab Laboratory at Atrium. And this is, you know, a tremendous example of how, you know, family can take, can take um, their pa the, the, the a tragedy and move a program for and move and turn that into something that can lead to potentially something that could be really instrumental for their family member, but also for thousands of other people uh, affected by this disease uh, in the United States and elsewhere. I, I just want to clarify one point. You said ML Bio was founded in 2001. You were talking about the research labs, not Sorry, yeah, ML the, the Bio. lab was found, the the Merritt Lockwood Lab was formed founded, and, and ML Bio was founded in 2018, uh, following developments and and research that emerged from that that organization. In 2019, Bridge Bio acquired ML Bio. Bridge Bio sought to create a, an efficient business model that seeks to treat a portfolio, take a portfolio strategy to mitigate the risk of drug development. It often forms companies around single assets or a group of focused assets. What does being part of Bridge Bio mean to ML Bio Solutions? Is there much interaction between ML Bio and, and Bridge? Do they act as investors or do they play more of a hands-on role in the drug development process? Yeah, it's it's been a really remarkable journey as a partner and uh, affiliate of Bridge Bio. Um, Bridge Bio, as you mentioned, acquired uh, ML Bio Solutions in in 2019. That brought a huge. Uh, that was a decision that was taken um, to to take advantage of significant resources that Bridge can bring to bear, and it's not really financial. Um, there's money that can be raised from other sources. What they bring is is a cross functional expertise and a passion. Bridge. It is a organization committed to developing therapies for rare genetic diseases, of which uh, limb girdle muscular dystrophy type 2i is just one. Um, by being a, a, an affiliate of Bridge, it gives me access uh, to resources across the organization. One of the biggest challenges when you're a small company like ML Bio was with just a handful of employees is that you're dependent on the expertise and the feedback that you can get from this very narrow circle of people. And there's an echo chamber risk and, and the lack of resources that that brings to bear. Bridge has the, the availability to leverage assets and resources and expertise and people who have specific skills across the organization is tremendously helpful uh, in, 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 really, in, in really accelerating the, uh, our, our productivity and how quickly we can move this program forward. Uh, in the case of ML Bio, is there a good example of how you were able to leverage that? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, you know, the most primary example is our chief scientific officer, who is who, who a woman named Uma Sinha, who is an extremely talented, uh, knowledgeable um, expert uh, in de in early stage development, IND uh, execution. This is a woman we could not possibly have afforded uh, in. Uh, to hire uh, to play that role in our company, but we're able to to, to leverage her presence uh, and and use part of her effort. Um, she puts she spends a lot of time working for several other programs, and and on her side, on on, on the side, she uh, provides critical instrumental work for us as well. 
prior to joining ML Bio, you were vice president and therapeutic area head for spinal muscular atrophy for Avexis. This was one of the most closely watched programs at the time on the cutting edge of rare disease therapies. The company developed the gene therapies, Olgensma. What attracted you to ML Bio? You know, I think, uh, you know, from my perspective, I actually, you know, answered a little bit differently. I take a kind of step back and, and that, and, you know, I've had the immense privilege of being able to be involved now in multiple programs, changing the field that I uh, first came into. I'm a pediatric neuromuscular specialist by my training, and I was in practice uh, at Columbia University in New York City. And um, pediatric neuromuscular medicine is, is an amazing field. Uh, you're, you're, you're really doing God's work, helping patients and families with devastating neuromuscular diseases, manage their diseases, live as normal lives as possible. Um, but it's also an ex- the, the field that I encounter is also an extremely challenging one. I mean, it's absolutely crushing to diagnose a child with a devastating, life-altering, life-limiting disease. Have the par- parents turn to you and say, okay, well, what, what are the treatments that are, what, what are the treatment options for my child? And and saying, yeah, there's none, and there's none on the horizon, and we don't even have a prospect of, of getting to a therapy. Uh, so it's been an immense privilege for me to be able to, to change that um, for you know, my time at Avexis, working with a transformative gene therapy product in, in spinal muscular atrophy. And ML Bio uh, is, has much the same aspirations. Limb girdle muscular dystrophy type 2i is an untreated, untreatable disease that affects thousands of patients and leads to chronic disability, wheelchair dependence in many patients, the need for ventilatory support and ventilators, heart problems, and really is a life-altering and life-affecting disease. And there is no therapy. And so what attracted me to joining ML Bio was the opportunity to, to play a, a, a ground role uh, in changing that for thousands of patients. And what an immense privilege. Let's talk a bit more about limb girdle muscular dystrophy. My understanding is this is not a single disease, but several related diseases with different underlying genetic causes. You're focused on type 2i. What is that and how does that differ from other forms of limb girdle muscular dystrophy? Yeah, it really takes a, you know, a bit of a history lesson. So you know, one of the things that we forget in the modern era is that you know, molecular diagnoses, where you can take a blood test and get a genetic result, is, is not something that we, we had, you know, 50 years ago. It's not something we even really had 10 years ago. When, when, I, um, when I joined industry in 2013, diagnosing patients with specific forms of limb girdle muscular dystrophy was, was practically extremely expensive and very limited. Patients historically were, were described as having limb girdle muscular dystrophy based on their symptoms. So patients would have weakness in their shoulder muscles, in their leg muscles, in their girdle muscles, their thorax. And so they'd have this really kind of proximal big muscle weakness that would lead them to have problems with getting up from a chair, walking, lifting up their arms. Ultimately, it would get worse and worse and affect breathing and their, and, and their diaphragm and their heart muscles as well. Uh, and so the, because we had no ability to really differentiate these diseases, they all kind of looked the same. They were called limb girdle muscular dystrophy. 
And then only later when we started to identify the specific underlying causes, did we label individual subtypes. Uh, and so limb girdle muscular dystrophy type 2i is a specific genetic disease that's caused by the mutation of an enzyme called FKRP. And it causes one of dozens of different forms of limb girdle muscular dystrophy. How does that complicate the drug developer's role in, in terms of going after uh, a single form of limb girdle, or do you go after a very specific form? It, it creates it creates a lot of complexities uh, that that um, affect the development process in different ways. I think the most profound one is just the recognition and identification of patients. So, you know, as I mentioned, until really about 10 years ago, there wasn't any real straight, really straightforward way to identify what a what type of disease a, 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 a patient had. When I was in practice, many of my patients, most of them, in fact, were described as having limb girdle muscular dystrophy, NOS, or not otherwise specified. And there's thousands and thousands of patients who have similarly been diagnosed as having limb girdle muscular dystrophy without having any real further distinction. And, and frankly, back in the day, it didn't make a difference. There were no therapies for any of these diseases. It was expensive. It was limited. What was the point in going down this rabbit hole to find, find, these, these, the, find out whatever the specific subtype was? That all changed in 2014. There was a partnership between a foundation called the Jane Foundation, Another great example of how patient advocacy organizations can really drive transformations in a field. And they partnered with Genzyme uh, in something called the Lantern Project. Uh, and this was basically an effort to leverage the, the, the rapid advances in, um, in molecular genetics to create panel testing that was funded by industry and funded, uh, but run independently through uh, through private philanthropy to uh, provide access for genetic testing for patients with limb girdle muscular dystrophy. And so instead of having pa patients on a research basis test for this, for individual types, you're able to get a free uh, blood test that would diagnose, uh, diagnose potentially 20 or 30 different forms of limb girdle muscular dystrophy through one test. And in this, and this has really transformed the field. We've gone from a research, most patients not really diagnosed, to one where now in the modern era in the United States uh, and most, of, most other Western countries, you will get a diagnosis of your specific form of limb girdle muscular dystrophy. And that's really a critical development because it allows you to identify patients, patients to identify the potential um, uh, research options that they might want to be involved with. And it's really a critical advance in, in making, uh, in, in allowing development uh, of effective therapies. How predictable a progression is there for a patient with limb girdle? And how do the different types vary in, in intensity or heterogeneity? Yeah, that's a really complicated question. And so, you know, speaking about it broadly, um, there's a lot of similarity between the different forms of limb girdle muscular dystrophy, but each of them, each of them has uh, vastly different um, features as far as the rate of progression, the age of onset, some of the other sequelae, whether heart problems are really predominant or whether they're not such a big deal. For limb girdle muscular dystrophy type 2i, 
Most patients will develop symptoms during childhood, depending on the severity of their underlying mutation. Some will present early in childhood, like age five. Others will present during their teen years. Uh, and, and so there's a bit of a, a heterogeneity to the disease, even if you're just talking about LGMD2I. Um, but patients will typically present, and they'll have this, what, what in, from a researcher's perspective is slow, but from a patient's perspective is inexorable progression of disease. They'll get, slight, they'll get consistently and consistently worse and worse and worse and worse over time. Children who develop symptoms during the first decade of life are typically wheelchair dependent, like they, they lose the ability to walk by the time they're 20. Uh, for patients who develop symptoms later, like during their teen years, about half of those patients will wind up wheelchair dependent um, by, by midlife. And so, you know, this is, a, this is a disease that has profound impact on patients' lives. And are there treatment options that exist today? <laughs> So right now, the only treatments that are, are available for patients with limb girdle muscular dystrophy type 2i are, are rehabilitative care, and so, and which is critical. Um, physical therapy, act, being active, uh, swim therapy, um, these are the things that keep patients limber and, and, um, and keep patients as functional as possible. Some patients will require scoliosis surgery to help maintain, maintain uh, body positioning, but Practically speaking, uh, there's very limited, it's very limited what you're able to do for these patients. There is no effective disease-modifying treatment for patients with limb girdle muscular dystrophy type 2i. And are steroids used to treat the condition? Uh, steroids have been used historically for, to treat a different form of muscular dystrophy called Duchenne muscular dystrophy. Um, so one of the things that's always been raised is, well, if it, it seems to work in that disease, would it work in other forms of muscular dystrophy? And, and unfortunately, there's, there, what evidence there is suggests that it doesn't help uh, for patients with limb girdle muscular dystrophy. And so it's generally not used for the most part. And how are patients generally diagnosed with the condition? So now in the modern era, um, what typically happens is a patient would present um, and obviously everybody's story is different, uh, but typically would present to a pediatrician uh, and ultimately would get referred uh, to a neurologist and then onward to a neuromuscular specialist. Uh, a, a neuromuscular specialist would typically recommend, re, uh, recognize the, the, the symptoms of proximal weakness, trouble from rising from the floor. Um, the patient may have some blood tests that would show an elevated creatine kinase level, which is an, an uh, a muscle enzyme that is released when the muscle cells break down. Uh, and based on those symptoms would perform a, a molecular blood test uh, that would diagnose the specific form of limb girdle muscular dystrophy. And in, you know, in the case of patients with LGMD2I would diagnose that specific, the, the specific underlying mutation uh, that was causative for the disease. ML bio is developing BBP 418. This is a, a pro drug. Can you explain what it is and, and how it works? Yeah, so, you know, that, that's where the story kind of gets a little bit complicated. So limb girdle muscular dystrophy type 2i is caused by a mutation of an enzyme called FKRP. Uh, and FKRP is involved in this process called glycosylation of another protein called alpha-dystroglycan. So alpha-dystroglycan is kind of the critical 
uh, linchpin protein on our muscle cells. It's, it, I, I would describe it as kind of a, a shock absorber for the muscle cells. And, and when it doesn't work right, the, the muscle cells have this, are subject to chronic injury and ultimately death and replacement and loss, which ultimately results in muscular dystrophy. And so FKRP is involved in attaching a, a sugar molecule to, this, to a chain of sugars uh, called a glycan chain. And this glycan chain is a critical component of alpha dystroglycan. So if FKRP doesn't, doesn't attach that sugar, the glycan chain doesn't form correctly. Alpha dystroglycan doesn't then work correctly. And then everything falls apart. And so FKRP uses a sugar called CDP ribotol, and it, and it attaches a ribotol phosphate molecule to that, to that glycan chain. And so what we do is we provide... Uh, in the form of BBP4 and 8, a synthesized version of ribotol, which is in, produced naturally by the body, but we provide lots and lots and lots of it. It's converted into lots and lots and lots of CDP ribotol. And it's hoped that by giving lots and lots of that, that substrate, the substance that the enzyme uses, that you can drive forward more of that fully formed, fully functional glycan chain formation. So I would kind of liken it to a fire just isn't really burning and you pour lots and lots and lots of fuel on it to help it work a little bit better. Uh, and so it's a simple, it's a simple, elegant solution uh, to a really complicated problem. Is the F expectation that this would slow progression, halt progression, or is there any potential it would yeah, that, reverse the disease? That is a really complicated question. So what we, what we've seen in our, uh, early trials um, is that there's some evidence that patients can actually experience some degree of recovery. Uh, we're seeing some actual improvement uh, in uh, open label phase two study of the disease, uh, which gives gives people the the hope that not only could you potentially halt progression if you were able to treat early enough, but that you could provide a, a, a allow the body to heal and recover and actually improve. That said, that's not the not necessarily the goal. You know, when we talk to patients uh, who are affected by this disease, what they're very emphatic about is that you know, they don't like where they're at now. They 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 mourn what they've lost as far as their abilities, but they're terrified of what they see in the future as far as what they'll lose next. And so, you know, as we're approaching our our, our development, uh, our goal is. To, to, to slow, particularly halt progression of the disease and show that in our product. Um, if, it, if it allows patients to get better, that'll be awesome. And uh, you know, I think that that's, that's, our, that's, our, our ex, that's our personal expectation, but just slowing the disease down would be a major advance uh, for patients affected by this disease for which there's no treatment and no prospect of treatment otherwise. The company announced positive results from a phase two trial last year. What's known about the safety and efficacy of it? Yeah, so as I was alluding to, we, we've conducted a phase two, two trial. It's uh, an open label study and it's ongoing. And, and we're, we're extremely excited about the results that we're seeing from that study. So what we've seen from a safety perspective is that um, this drug has is, is been remarkably well tolerated. Um, the only side effects that we're seeing are some um, some stomach up, upset stomach uh, some patients have that's generally transient, 
but it's been very well tolerated, which which we we hope and it will be consistent in, in our bigger studies, reflective of the fact that this is a, a synthesized version of something that our bodies already produce. From an efficacy standpoint, we're really excited about the early data. We we have a, a bioassay that measures that glycosylation of alpha dystroglycan, and we're seeing that patient that seeing that muscle cells are showing a much bigger, uh, a, a really marked improvement in the amount of alpha dystroglycan that's fully glycosylated after treatment with BBP four and eight, which suggests that the the drug is doing something at least on the level of the cell. Creatine kinase, which I mentioned. Uh, is a um, marker of muscle cell breakdown. And we're seeing that the creatine kinase levels are going way down after treatment with this drug as well. And we're also starting to see, uh, see uh, some signs from, our, from, from the clinical side as well. We're seeing an improvement in, in a clinical function test called the North Star Assessment, um, which is a, a, a clinical function assessment that's used in patients with limb girdle muscular dystrophy. And we're also seeing some signs that patients are starting to actually walk a little faster uh, when measured using some of our, our, our uh, ambulatory assessments as well. What's the development plan going forward? So we're excited to be advancing into phase three um, later this year. Our hope is that uh, we'll be um, getting into the clinic in the next several months. Uh, timeline is obviously subject to uh, so much variability that I, it would be remiss of me to speculate on the specific, but we're moving very quickly and as fast as we can into phase three. And we're really excited to be, be, be advancing this program forward. And how big a study do you expect that to be? What what are you going to be using for as endpoints? So, so we're going to be looking at a number of clinical endpoints. So this is a disease that affects motor function, so our ability to, to, to roll, to sit, to stand, to walk. Uh, we're going to measure ambulatory function. We're going to measure the disease that's marked by, by impairment of breathing, so we're measuring uh, how well patients breathe. We're going to be looking at measures of the heart. Uh, we're going to be looking at measures of how the upper limb works, so how, how well you can use your arms uh, in, in accomplishing tasks. So the, we're going to be assessing a whole host of different endpoints. Because this disease uh, progresses um, insidiously and relatively gradually over time from the standpoint of a trial where you'd like to do things in a year or six months or as short as you can, um, this is going to be a relatively long study or a large study. Uh, we expect to enroll somewhere between 80 and 100 patients. Uh, and this is going to be conducted over a longer term as well. And what happens to ML Bio with the success or failure of BP? 418. Will BridgeBio commercialize it on its own? Do you find a commercial partner or is there a pipeline behind this? Yeah, so it's a it's a fascinating question. And, and the great part from my perspective is it's outside my uh, outside my uh, lane to even answer it. But, you know, I would say that, you know, from my perspective, the, the goal, the goal that I've always had in being part of ML Bio is to develop this product uh, to address a critical unmet need in the neuromuscular community. And, you know, regardless of how we get there uh, with regard to the commercialization strategy, whether Bridge Bio invests in, in commercializing it itself or finds a partner, you know, from the patient perspective, the critical question is, are we going to be able to, to be successful in developing this product to meet the regulatory uh, obligations that we have to demonstrate its safety and efficacy and get it made available to patients. I think, you know, from my perspective, 
that's where my focus is. And um, I know that's where, where my colleagues focus is as well. And, you know, how we best uh, operationalize the commercialization will be a great question for another day. Doug Sproul, Chief Medical Officer of ML Biosolutions. Doug, thanks so much for your time today. Absolutely. It's a, it's a real pleasure to have the opportunity to speak with you today. And, you know, for any, uh, you know, additional questions people might have, we, we, I'd encourage people to go to our website, mlbiosolutions.com and, um, you know, certainly send us a note. Thanks for listening. For more information about rare disease and to connect to the rare disease community, go to globalgenes.org. To keep up on the latest news and trends affecting the rare disease community, be sure to visit raredaily.org. You can subscribe to the Rarecast RSS feed through raredaily.org or through SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast manager. The Rarecast is produced for Global Genes by the Levine Media Group. You can also find our podcast, The Bio Report, on these popular podcast sites. Our theme music is composed by Jonah Levine and performed by the Jonah Levine Collective. We'd love to hear from you. Drop us a note at danny at levinemediagroup.com.